Hi, my name is Amber Kelly. I'm the Director of Religious Education here at the Fourth Universalist Society. And thank you so much for joining us. What follows is video from our service on April 18th, 2021, talking about Earth Day and thinking about environmentalism. In this video, you'll hear the reading and reflection. Following that, you can sit down with myself and Reverend Schuyler, who delivered the reflection for a lively discussion where we go deeper into the service theme together. You're invited to check out our video and audio podcast each week. It's posted on our website, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram, as well as your favorite podcast streaming sites. If you like what you see, we hope you give us a positive review. The likes, the shares, the comments, the subscribes, these all help to spread Fourth Universalist Media further. Thank you again for watching, and we turn now to our reading. morning's reading is the English translation of a poem by Octavio Paz entitled La Lluvia Ojos de Agua de Sueño. Paz was a Mexican poet, essayist, and widely considered one of the finest poets of the 20th century. He was the recipient of the 1990 Nobel Prize in Literature, among other honors. Here are his words. The rain, eyes of shadow water, eyes of well water, eyes of dream water, blue suns, green whirlwinds, bird beaks of light pecking open pomegranate stars. But tell me, burnt earth, is there no water? Only blood, only dust, only naked footsteps on the thorns. The rain awakens. We must sleep with open eyes. We must dream aloud. We must sing till the song puts forth roots, trump, branches, birds, stars. We must find the lost word and remember, but the blood, the tides, the earth and the body say, and return to the point of departure. One of my favorite things to do as a child was to go for car rides out of town. My family lived in an urban suburb outside of Milwaukee, a community with city blocks and old homes. To the south was the big public city university. To the north, a string of suburbs. To the west, a river that separated us from the poor north side and to the east, Lake Michigan. Even though we were in a suburb, it felt like we were in an urban area. And indeed our suburb had the highest population density in the state. Despite this growing up in Wisconsin meant that you were never far from the country dairy farm, a cornfield, or a state park. On weekends, my parents and my brother and I would 
go pack into our small silver car, the old kind with the roll down windows and the barely working AC and drive out of the city. We visited the rolling hills and forests of the Kettle Moraine where glaciers had formed and valleys in the retreat north. We explored the Horicon marshes where endangered cranes lived and where naturalists sought to preserve them. And in the spring, we got lost in swampy woodlands where the melting snow erased the trails that we tried to follow. Now recently, with the re recent birth of our son and this week's celebration of Earth Day, I've been thinking a lot about how these early experiences formed me. These early exposures to nature's caused me to care deeply about preservation. I learned to love the wildness that I explored as a child and then learned to notice its absence when we returned to our suburban home. I loved nature's simplicity and the way it made me feel at peace. I loved that it was separated from the rest of my life, independent of school and stress and expectations and people. It eventually formed a kind of spirituality that understood nature as offering a profound and uniquely true experience of tranquility and grounding and connection, being at one with the universe. It's one of the great gifts that I think my parents offered my brother and me, and it's one of those things we still hold really dear. My brother now runs an outdoor gear company, helping people find ethically made equipment to enjoy nature. And I get to be lucky to serve a faith tradition that centers environmentalism as a core part of who we are. We see it in the seventh principle, after all, that insists that we respect the interdependent web of all existence. As I got older, I found that my experience of the outdoors mirrored much of what the founders of the environmentalist movement felt as well. John Muir, the father of the National Park System and the founder of the Sierra Club, wrote of the saving grace in returning and retreating to the natural world, a place that was unique in its ability to calm his soul. He wrote this, keep close to nature's heart and break clear away once in a while and climb a mountain or spend a week in the woods. Wash your spirit clean. Another time he wrote this, I only went out for a walk and finally concluded to stay out till sundown for going out I found was really going in. From Muir's writing, as with a lot of early environmentalists, nature is a respite, it's an escape, it's a sacred space that offers unparalleled spiritual gifts. Now this resonated with me as a child. It's part of what I found as a gift of nature, and it still does. Living in New York City, I miss an easy access to the woods and wild places, to be able to get into a car that I no longer own, driving off. Central Park is beautiful, but it is tame. But, and yet, as I grew older, I also came to understand that Muir and other environmentalists, early environmentalists, also understood nature in ways that were problematic.
When they spoke of escape, for example, it wasn't just escape into the beauty of nature. It was also an escape from the city, to get away from it. Their writings overflow with praise of the pristineness of nature, something that I resonate with and I suspect a lot of us do. But it was often praise in contrast with the dirtiness that they perceived in urban life. We can't forget that during that time, as still today, it was a time of great racial segregation and inequality. And then it was coupled with the arrival of millions of immigrants. It's hard not to see in the rejection of the cities a clear racial and class judgment. It wasn't just a virtue of the nature one escapes to, but the depravity of what one should escape from. Early environmentalists spoke openly about nature's purity and how it could be disturbed even by the very people living there. Muir once said that Native Americans, quote, seem to have no right place in the landscape, as if their presence served only to disrupt the tranquility that he enjoyed when he went there. In many ways, early environmentalists were motivated to save the planet for all these wrong reasons. Their activism was inseparable from ideas of whiteness and privilege. Jebediah Purdy writes in The New Yorker that for them, quote, wild nature was worth saving for its aristocratic qualities. Where those, when those were lacking, they were indifferent. Nature was a place to vacation. And environmentalism was the effort to save their favorite place of leisure. It was a way for white Americans to take control of the land by claiming to protect it, all the while inventing and strengthening their own claims to nativeness at the expense of those who were already there. All of this, learning this, gave me pause. It forces me to think about my own motives for environmentalism. I too came to love the natural world as a form of spiritual refuge, where I could get away from it all and be unburdened by the baggage of the world. It was a safe space where I felt connected to the universe. I think it's worth all of us on this Earth Day and on all Earth Days to think about what brings us to be environmentalists. Perhaps you share a similar story mind with similar early motivations. Perhaps you love the natural world because it gives you a spiritual experience of tranquility and peace and beauty. Perhaps you feel like your realest self there, and so you care deeply about protecting it. Let me say there is nothing wrong with environmentalism like that. That is a profound spiritual experience. But we can't ignore the parallels to history either. That an environmentalism that emerges solely from these motivations can lead to a dangerous place. We have to recognize that if our primary motivation for environmental work is to protect our own feeling of tranquility in nature, we will resist anything that disrupts that tranquility. And real environmental justice work when done right, is anything but tranquil. It is disruptive and messy and difficult. And too often, we avoid it because it's not what we signed up for. Real environmental justice work means sharing space with others 
and letting go of our exclusive claims to the natural world and the land we love. It requires moving out of our safe space and being fully present with the challenges of our world. In other words, it is the exact opposite of an escape. It also means that it is racial justice work. You can't separate those two things because those who are most harmed by the environmental crises of this day are people of color and those on the margins. It means reconciling with the fact that those who are most hurt by the, a dying and suffering planet are people of color. It means knowing that black people are four times as likely to die from pollution than white people, and that they are 75% more likely to live next to a power plant or factory. The rallying cry of racial justice that I can't breathe takes on a whole different meaning. Now this tie into racial justice is hard for white people because racial justice is hard for white people in general. And it's also hard for white environmental activists. In 2014, a study shows that white people occupied 89% of leadership positions in environmental organizations. That is a very, very high number. And it's because when environmentalism is grounded in a white person's desire for emotional refuge, they will resist the important work of environmental justice when it gets hard or uncomfortable. There is safety and comfort in caring about polar bears in the Arctic or tree frogs in the Amazon rainforest. Tree frogs and polar bears can't challenge us. They can't call us out. But the environmentalist movement, if we are going to get beyond the problematic legacies of its white founders, has to care about people too. It has to see environmentalism in the air quality of cities and the contaminated waters of poor industrial towns. It has to see it in the reasons why power plants and factories and waste facilities are built near black and brown communities and how when climate events happen, like hurricanes or snowstorms or droughts, some people can get away and escape, but others have no choice but to stay and suffer. So on this Earth Day, ask yourself what your environmental story is. Ask yourself what got you into this work, what motivated you, and what still does. Ask yourself what makes you care about the Earth the natural world, climate change. Ask yourself, where do the real lives of human beings factor in? The real lives of those people who are impacted by environmental crisis. Wonder about how willing you are to broaden your definition of environmental justice to allow other people to be part of it, who might be less concerned about the tree frogs and the polar bears than about their drinking water in their area of the world. It is okay for nature to be an escape, a spiritual safe space, a connection point between you and the universe. But make sure you don't just stop caring at that point, just about protecting the gifts the natural world gives you. That becomes selfish. It becomes spiritual narcissism. Make sure your empathy doesn't just include the animals and the plants, 
that can't ask us to be anything other than what we are, but that it includes also fellow human beings that can nurture us on our own spiritual journey. Make sure it leaves you open to the harder work, to learning and growing, to sharing this world with others, no matter if your tranquility is disrupted. This is the kind of environmentalism our world needs. It's the kind that's going to save this planet that we love. Not just for the polar bears and the tree frogs, not just for the countryside that we like driving out into as we get away from the hustle and bustle of our city life. Not just so we can make sure that we keep that feeling of harmony and tranquility. The environmentalism we need still cares about all of that, but also always, always the people too. May it be so, and amen. So Reverend Skyler, I'm really excited to get to sit down with you today after such a, that, that sermon was really moving for me personally. I, you know, I, I don't often type amen in the chat, but I did, I did send one uh, your way. So thanks for sitting down to have a little bit of a chance to, to dive, uh, dive deeper into things today. Thank you, Amber. It always means a lot coming from you. And uh, um, yeah, I'm excited to talk more. So much like you, I, I also have Wisconsin in my life. Um, so maybe that was what resonated so much is that I'm like, ah, yes, Wisconsin. Um, but, but, you know, uh, I think that for, uh, I think you were very spot on in like naming that for a lot of especially white Americans, there is just like this, ah, yes, I want to get away from the busyness and go to, to my life. And it's a very natural response. Like we, we live in a world that is very busy. Like, I, I think this is a natural response. I think that I, I just, I found that you know, um, interesting the way that you then connected it to uh, racial dynamics. And I couldn't help but think of the Central Park case from last, um, last summer. Gosh, it's been a while now. Uh, where, you know, someone who is, who is Black was walking around in Central Park and running into issues just merely existing there. And that's just in a very curated place like, like Central Park. So I'd love to hear uh, maybe a little bit more from you in terms of like thinking about these um, racial dynamics that sometimes underpin our, our relationship with nature. Yeah. So, uh, so I think the key is to look back in the history of the environmental movement and recognize that there is a direct correlation between the idea of preserving the natural areas and, and seeing them as an escape from what many of these early founders saw as uh, racially charged cities, um, places that were essentially polluted by, uh, by working class, poor black and brown people. Um, sometimes indigenous people who actually lived in the land that they were trying to save uh, and they wanted them gone. Um, and so if we look at the environmental movement as more of an effort to preserve a, a uh, vacation area, right? And this idea of what is purity uh, and that what is preservation, the environmentalist movement began as an idea to basically clean up these, these areas and save them from, from, of course, either destruction from you know, building and other things, uh, and farming and stuff, but they were also tied to this idea of wanting to get away from 
racially complex realities that were back in the city. And um, it's not to say that everyone who enjoys the nature today is doing that same thing, but we have to be thoughtful about our own motivations um, and the traps that we can fall into when we as white people, speaking as for myself, uh, you know, as a white person who, who, who loves nature and also loves it for the fact that it's not the city, right? Um, but that there's a lot of a privilege to be able to get away from where you live to go someplace else. That there's, um, that there's a lot of built-in assumptions that we white people often have about, about what cities are versus what nature is. Uh, and often that nature is an exclusion of a racially diverse, um, often socioeconomically diverse, community that the cities represent um, and and wanting to avoid the human complexity that comes with cities. Right. And as we both uh, lead the confronting colonialism course, I can't help but think about Teddy Roosevelt's role in like creating the national parks. And here is someone who was famous for his military policies and for the way that he, uh, you know, uh, conquered in Cuba and other other places like this, you know, that that there definitely is those those colonial undertones in it as well. That like we need to uh, preserve this land for us, like the the real true owners now. Um, that I think often comes into play. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this idea that that white people pro proved their nativeness by being quote unquote good stewards of the land, right? That they were the the true rightful heirs of that land, and they and that they live that out by by loving nature, right? And by preserving it is a real thing that they wrote about and talked about. Um, and uh, that's, again, not to say that we all think that way now, but but the philosophical strains, we are we inherit those philosophical ideas and that they are within our society and particularly among white America that, you know, we are a good person in relation to nature if we are a good steward, um, you know, but maybe we don't like it if indigenous people hunt seals on that land because that's not the right thing to do as a good, you know, a good environmentalist because the seals are this way or that, right? And that's, so there are these tensions, right? Between, between uh, you know, sort of white liberal environmentalists um, and indigenous peoples or, uh, you know, by other minority and POC folks um, who, who lay alternative claims to land that don't fall so neatly into of white liberal environmentalism. Definitely, I, I know that, um, and perhaps in, in my relationship to, to nature, uh, one of the areas that I always enjoy going to the most is, is that little like nexus of nature and industry slash the city uh, right next to each other. We have here in Bayonne in New Jersey, we have a park that is this, you know, cute little park and it's, but it's right on the Newark Bay, which is the busiest industrial seaport on the Eastern Atlantic. And so it's like this really interesting dynamic to be like, ah, oh, yes, I'm peaceful in nature. And also there's a bunch of freight over there as well. Um, so, you know, I, I often try and find myself uh, moving towards those, those interesting uh, nexuses of, <laughs> of sure. city and, and nature all in one. And I mean, I think that's the reason why people also like Central Park is that it's the city and nature all at once. Well, something very powerful, right, about that um, because it, it speaks to our effort to both encounter wildness and nature 
um, but do it in dialogue with our, our lived, lived experience, right? Our day-to-day experience that we don't have to, we don't have to escape and go off to Montana, uh, to experience, you know, the natural world. Um, because not only can not everyone do that, but what a sad life to not have that in your day-to-day life. Um, you know, I think, you know, we look at their efforts like that. I mean, there it's, it's part of, part of bringing in beauty into our world um so that we we can live a holistic life um all the time and uh you know i think it's easy to uh nostalgize the natural world from a place of urban areas um, i even think about like thoreau right or thoreau as, as it's actually pronounced um hanging out in walden pond and being you know the the first american naturalist that you know we fondly remember as a as a sort of uu transcendentalist person um you know the walden pond of of his era was very different than what uh what we think of it as um, first of all if you ever go to walden pond it's basically in suburb concord's a suburb now um it's not like i always thought growing up that it was some some remote place far away it's it's a very finely tuned suburb but even then when he was there, it was it was far less uh, foresty than it is now. At least it's a little park now. Back back then, you could the the train would go by it uh, on a daily basis, not a couple times, and you would see it from where he was. So it wasn't like he was just like in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so I think it's so imp- it's powerful and super empowering to recognize that we can have the connection to the natural world in urban areas, right? In cities, that it doesn't have to be this pristineness that comes with whiteness so often, right? Um, that anyone can experience it no matter where they are. Um, and not like thumbing our nose down at, uh, you know, an effort to create an urban garden or to have a, a little park by a factory. And um, that those are actually quite noble efforts. Um, not perfect, of course. I mean, I, I love I love the wilds of Montana uh, more than I do Central Park, even though I love Central Park for what it is. Um, but but we need to be really careful that we don't attach a moral judgment to that uh, or a racial judgment to that. Definitely. Well, and then maybe as kind of a final area to think about, I you know appreciated how you talked about. Uh, I don't know if you used the word intersectional. I'm trying to think if that was actually used, but effectively that you know that our environmental work should be intersectional. That we should be thinking about the fact that nuclear waste is dumped near like reservations. <laughs> that factories are built near marginalized communities because you know, it's used as a way to, to um, put some other claim on the land to, to not, not do these things in the nice neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think that's so key uh, that, that we make sure that our environmental work is focused on seeing how classism, racism, sexism, all of these things coincide so much because I know you know the the meme out there is that you know uh, if you if you tell a white person that that a dog died, you're, they're going to be much sadder than finding out that someone was was shot by the police. Um, so I think it's important for our relation to the environment to be this intersectional uh, experience. And I you know I think uh, I think you kind of you talked about that in in the message that there's so many areas where where these concepts intersect. Would you want to touch on maybe some more areas that maybe you, you had to, to cut for length in, in the sermon? Well, the dog meme, that's powerful. That's really powerful. Um, because 
it's a lot easier to mourn uh, something that doesn't challenge you at all, something that's not really human. Um, I think that when we look at the environmental movement in its easiest, most digestible for white people, it's it's about laying claim to a sort of a righteousness that that folks feel that they alone can have at times. Um, uh, I hear this very clearly when I talk to folks, and I, I hear I've heard this directly a number of times, where white people are caring are complaining. You know, why don't people of color care about climate change? Um, which, of course, is a huge generalization and not not true. Um, you know, don't they realize? Don't they? Don't they? Don't they? While you know, people of color are worrying about being shot by police on the street, um, and so you know, there are there is some tensions there about why does this really impact? You know, there's a, there's a level of privilege that comes with being able to care about sort of more esoteric and long distance threats like climate change that is inherently a product of white white privilege. Um, you know, living here on the Upper West Side, I don't have to worry about being shot by police because I'm white and I'm, you know, fairly well off here in my, you know, condo to have, I can worry about that. And I think there's also, there's a real feeling that like, you know, I think sometimes white folks, white environmentalists kind of see the battles that poor people or people of color see with the environmental movement of whether it's like clean water or leading by a factory or the air pollution nearby them. It's kind of small potatoes compared to this larger looming threat of, of the climate crisis, um, and uh, and that again is privilege. And it's but it's less sexy, right? It's to try to clean out water in a poor town someplace in Alabama is less sexy than than talking about you know or having a polar bear on an iceberg floating away and you know starving and drowning and that's really vivid, and it's also you know, less, less important fundamentally than that child in Alabama that is breathing in toxic fumes and is going to develop lung cancer um, and have his life cut um, short. Um, so I think we have to be really careful about, again, our motivations. It all goes back to our motivations of, you know, are we in it because we love this idea of this pristineness out there that we can visit and touch and give us a spiritual experience, which is not a bad thing, but if it just stops there, we forget that always the people who are most harmed by the environmental crisis of this planet are those who are poor and those who are black and brown. And that is just how it is. And so if we don't care about that experience, we're going to miss the boat on the real serious environmental issues of the day. Reverend Schuyler, thank you so much for sitting down with me and diving a little bit deeper into this, uh, into this reflection. Thank you.